everyone, before you get started on this episode, I just want to let everybody know that I have renamed the show Historically Haunted, and I also changed up my formula from the episode. So what you're about to listen to is an older version of the show. The new show is a lot better. I hope you guys stick around to listen to the much newer episodes that started at episode 18. Also, if you want to get in touch with me, I'm now at Historically Haunted on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you guys want to email me any personal paranormal experiences or just say hi, you can email me now at historicallyhaunted.313 at gmail.com. And I have my links to all my new stuff down below. So I hope you guys enjoy and I hope you guys stick around for the newer stuff. All right, let's roll that old tape. Hello you goblins and ghouls, welcome to History and Mystery. My name is Ariel and I am your ghost host for this historical and paranormal podcast. It is officially October and you know what that means. Halloween is only 25 days away from when I've posted this podcast episode and I am so excited. This month is made for us spooky people. The time of year where we don't get as weird looks for talking about ghosts and witches, bats and ghouls. Today I am going to be covering history of Halloween and then I will tell you some urban legend ghost stories at the end because who doesn't love Halloween without a good ghost story? If you're new to my show, welcome. So this is how my show usually works. I normally pick one location to cover each episode. After my Monster of the Week segment, I cover historical location and then I cover the hauntings and I post a podcast every other Sunday. But all the month of October, I'm going to be switching things up a little bit and do a show every Sunday as I build to some listener stories and some super haunted locations for the Halloween episode. First, I wanted to thank everyone who has taken the time to like my Facebook and Twitter account at the name History and Mystery. I have also an Instagram page at History underscore Mystery 13, and I hope that you will all go add me on that. I also have a website now, and I have the link to uh, that website in the show notes down below. But if you wanted to find it, it is www.historyandmystery13.wixsite.com slash website. You can also find the link to my Patreon page on my website as well. Speaking of my new Patreon page, I have started a Patreon page because I have realized that it is quite expensive to promote my new show. And I'm trying really hard to get new listeners so more people can enjoy the history and spooks with me. So I have started a Patreon page to try to help cover the cost of my podcast host monthly and a payment 
And maybe someday I would love to sell merchandise on my show, like decals, uh, stickers, maybe even a shirt someday. I would never ask anyone to struggle by donating to my show, and I will still be doing this and making this fun and free. But if you like the show and you feel like donating a dollar or more a month, I would greatly appreciate it. I have two tiers so far. If you donate one dollar a month, it will be under the Thunderbird tier, and I'm going to be sending out a fun little e-newsletter every month. Um, to let you know of upcoming shows that I'm going to be doing and maybe fun little facts or an article that fits the time of year or what my show is going to be about. The next tier will be called Mothman tier and this tier is just three dollars or more a month and this tier will get you an e-newsletter that I just described plus another e-newsletter that will cover monsters and UFO sightings that are still making the news and headlines today. I will put a link to my Patreon page in the show notes down below as well. And please don't forget to join my group page on Facebook, and that's where we can talk about all things spooky 365 days a year and also offer support for each other. I believe that kindness first, so I have rules on my page that you can read before you join. All you have to do is go on to my Facebook group history and mystery group page, and then you can go on there and all it is is are you a listener or do you... I think it's, do you subscribe to my show? And you just type in yes and I'll add you. Also typing in yes is um, agreeing to the rules that I have on there that you can read before you join as well. Um, Kindness first, don't make fun of anybody, that kind of thing. And also be very like open-minded also as well for people who post things about ghosts because everyone has their own beliefs and that's 100% fine with me. Just basically no name calling, no profanity, things like that. To everyone who has downloaded my show, thank you so much. I am now at 346 downloads and I'm not saying that number to brag or anything. I'm saying that number out of shock. I thought that only my parents would listen to this podcast and people are actually taking the time out of their day to listen and comment uh, and are liking my episodes. So thank you guys so much. And I would still love for you to take the time to rate and review my podcast down below. It would help me out a lot. Also, you can share my podcast with anyone who you think might be interested or might like it as well. I'm excited to announce that my uh, podcast is now on iHeartRadio and I'm also on YouTube at History and Mystery. So now you can find my show on there. And speaking of YouTube... I got my first YouTube comment and I thought I'd read that as well. The comment is from Nina and she said, I found you on iHeartRadio two days ago and I'm glad you are now here. Keep up the good work. So thank you so much for that, Nina. I also got my first shout out on Instagram from two people. Um, I'm going to say this wrong, so I'm just going to spell it actually. It's the username E-D-E-N-V-1014 posted a picture of my show on her from her Spotify onto her Instagram page, leaving a comment saying, just getting into podcasts and love them so far, listening uh, to the latest episode uh, from History and Mystery. I definitely recommend checking it out. And then she added a lot of awesome tags. And then Shelby Lean P, I think, Leamp, something like that. I'm sorry, guys. I'm not good at names or uh, usernames. Anyway, Shelby Leamp commented on the photo saying that I really liked it. Interesting episodes, easy to follow and listen to. And then she put in parentheses, some other podcasts are just sort of annoying. Ha ha ha. Looking forward to listening to more. So a big thank you to you two lovely ladies for giving my show a try and taking the time to recommend it. So thanks to everyone who has ever commented and gave me feedback. 
one last reminder that I would love to do more listener stories. So please send them to me at my email address, historyandmystery.13 at gmail.com. If you have ever had a paranormal or spooky experience, send it to me and I will read it on my show for the Halloween episode. All right, that's enough about me. Now let's get this show on the road. This week's Monster of the Week is something that is used in costumes for Halloween and is the monster of many scary movies, and that is the werewolf. No one knows exactly where the werewolf legend began, but many scholars believe that the werewolf was made its first appearance in the oldest known western pose, the Epic of Gilgamesh. In this legendary story, Gilgamesh jilted a potential lover when he found out that she had previously turned her old boyfriend into a wolf. Werewolves even made it into the Greek mythology with the legend of Lycaon. In this legend, Lycaon, who was the son of Pelagius, had a meal with Zeus only to anger him when Zeus found out that Lycaon had served Zeus a meal made of the remains of a sacrificed boy. Zeus became enraged and as punishment, Zeus cursed him by turning Lycaon and his sons into wolves. The werewolf even turned up in Nordic folklore as well with the saga of the Volsings. I don't think I said that right, but it's basically called the Saga of Volsongs or something like that. Sorry. (laughs) In this story, um, there were many variations of it online. I found a bunch of different types, so I don't know what the true story is. Um, But the one that I found the most relevant to the werewolf story is in the story, a father and son discover wolf pelts that had the power to turn the wear into wolves for 10 days. The father and son put on the pelts. And basically, they went on a killing spree in the forest. At the end of the 10 days, the son turned back into a human first, and his father attacked him, causing a lethal wound. The son was dying, and when the father had turned back into a human and saw what he had done, he fell to his knees in grief and misery. But a kind raven gave them a leaf with healing powers so that the father used it on the son to save his son's life. By medieval times, werewolves and lore had turned from just stories to tell in the dark to what I will describe as werewolf hysteria. Much like the witch hysteria in this time, mostly men were being convicted left, right, and center of being a werewolf. People were hung for their crimes or worse, burned alive at the stake. In France in the 1500s, a man named Michael Verdun was convicted of being a werewolf. Under torture, he confessed to being in league with the devil, who gave him the power to change into a wolf, and he said he went on a killing spree and killed many children. He was burned at the stake. Because of his confession, this wolf hysteria spread like wildfire, and before you knew it, people were blaming any misfortune in the farming community on werewolves, pretty much just like they did witches. The shape-shifting werewolf stories changed over time, from people just putting on pelts to change for a time, to if you were bit by a werewolf, you were now cursed to change like them. American Indians even have a variation in their folklore about this that they call the skinwalkers. Today, the most common part of the story is that a werewolf will change only at the full moon. That part might actually have a medical reason that we know today. It is now common to hear, it's a full moon outside, people are going to get crazy. A study conducted in Australia in the, at the Australian Master Newcastle Hospital found that the full moon does indeed bring out the beast in many humans. The study found that out of the 91 violent acute behavior incidences at the hospital saw between August 20, 2008 
and July 2009, 23% of them happened during a full moon. Patients would act out and attack the staff and display what they called wolf-like behaviors like biting, spitting, and scratching. While yes, a lot of those people were under the influence at the time, it is still unclear why they became more increasingly violent during the full moon. In 1941, the werewolf was made famous in Hollywood when the movie The Wolfman, directed by George Wagner, starring Lon Chaney Jr. playing the wolfman himself, it scared many of moviegoers and is still a staple in the old scary movies to watch during Halloween time today. While you might think the werewolf is just a myth, it might surprise you that there have been reported werewolf attacks and encounters reported all over the world still in this time period. For instance, a group of teens in Temper... Arizona reported on an encounter with one. In the book Chasing American Monsters by Jason Offit, the group got bored with Bible study class and they went for a walk. And they said that they were walking on a golf course late at night, only to have one of the girls in the group claim that she saw something drop down from a really tall tree. The boys didn't think much of it and they kept going, when only to have the girl scream out in terror behind them. When the boys looked up, they said, they saw a creature that they described that was six feet tall and hunched over with a snout like a werewolf with a coat blacker than night and it lunged toward them as if to attack them and they ran for it. It chased after them until they made it back to their Bible study. So while the werewolf might just be folklore, just remember that some people still say that it is out there waiting for you in the dead of night under a full moon. Trick or treat! That's usually the first thing that comes to mind when someone says Halloween. The biggest question of the night is usually, who are you supposed to be? (laughs) Today, Halloween is a night full of fun tricks and good tasting treats and a spooky atmosphere. The history of Halloween and how we got to what it is today is a much darker path, full of rituals passed down through the generations, a night where the veil is thin and the dead come back to the land of the living, and a night of mischief. Let's go back in time, around 2,000 years ago, to find out why and how Halloween is what it is today, and you will discover it's a mix of different beliefs that create one big melting pot, or in this case, melting cauldron. One thing that I found out about Halloween is that Halloween and a lot of other holidays came to be so popular because of people trying to stop the Celts from celebrating their pagan holidays. 2,000 years ago in Central Europe, Celtic people were groups of tribes that shared a similar language and culture. They also had their own religious beliefs and traditions. The Greeks and the Romans called them barbarians, but the Celts were a strong group of people who celebrated many of their own holidays. One of those holidays was a festival called Samhain. 
Samhain is a festival that it is believed where Halloween originated from. Samhain is a festival that is held at the end of October to mark the end of harvest and the beginning of winter. This festival was surrounded by death. When you think about it, it is not hard to see why it would be. In fall, all the plants die and go to sleep for winter. If you had a bad crop, your people would starve to death and die during winter. So you can see why death is on the mind during this celebration. They would hold almost like a sort of party around big bonfires and dance and tell stories around them. But they also wanted to be together on that night for another reason. Celts also believed that on that night, the night of Samhain, the day of the living and the night of the dead overlapped, making what they called the veil very thin. Spirits could come back and walk amongst the living and the Celts fearing that the dead would sometimes have evil intent would stay together around big bonfires and they also would wear masked to blend in and hide from the dead. Some groups of Celts also believe that they would have to leave a kind of offering of food and wine out on the doorstep to try to keep the spirits at bay. This is a very early glimpse at trick-or-treating. The bonfires that the Celts would gather around helped humans find its first Halloween-related object other than the masks, and that would be bats. Bats could not be seen at dark in ancient times unless you had a lot of light, and the bonfires provided the perfect atmosphere to see the bats swooping overhead while they were, of course, going for bugs. Meanwhile, the Celts down below were dancing and telling stories around the bonfires. In 43 AD, the Romans had taken over vast areas of Europe, and the Celts had been under Roman rule for four centuries, and the Romans wanted to incorporate their own religion into the Samhain holiday. They added a new day to honor the goddess Famona. Still in keeping in tune with the fall harvest here, she was the goddess of fruit and trees, and her symbol was an apple. It is believed this is where the bobbing for apples game originated. By 1000 AD, the Roman Catholic Church had taken over and wanted the Celts to stop their pagan beliefs and what they called evil and witchcraft. But making it stop altogether was not working out as planned, so they decided to add some new days to celebrate to try to counter Samhain. They added first All Saints Day on November 1st as a day to honor the dead saints. When that didn't work out as well as hoped, they added another day on November 2nd called All Souls Day. All Souls Day was another day to honor the dead, but this day was supposedly to pray for souls who the church said were trapped in what they called purgatory. Not quite hell, not quite heaven, and apparently these souls needed help. So if enough people prayed for their deceased, they would rise up and go to heaven. Saints Day that was on November 1st also took another name that they called All Hallows Day. So the night before of October 31st became known as All Hallows Eve. And we all know today that the name was shortened from All Hallows Eve to what we know now as just Halloween. So really, we can thank the church for instead of making the party stop, it gave people reasons to party for three full days. And Halloween is obviously a huge holiday still to this day. So thanks, church. In the 1400s, witch hysteria had taken its hold in Europe. Mostly women were accused of being in league with the devil. Several objects we use in our Halloween decorations today can be traced to this moment in history. The broom, the cauldron, the witch's hat, and of course, the black cat. If you look at early depictions of witches in the medieval times, the witch hat does not look too different from a normal country woman's hat of that time period. The broom was seen as a form of transportation, and the cat normally hangs out by the broom and the hearth where the cauldron is placed. 
The witch hysteria during this time saw many people hanged and caused many people to panic and think that anyone could be in league with the devil. Because especially at this time, Halloween was being tried to be shown as evil by the churches, it's no wonder to think why witches, bats, and skeletons are now a big part of Halloween decorations today. The celebration was at this time a full three-day event, mixing different beliefs. Having big bonfires, wearing costumes, and having parties were now more of the norm. This was also a glimpse of what we now officially call trick-or-treating today. It started with orphan children going door-to-door to offer to pray for the dead in exchange for soul cakes that were made on All Souls Day, and this soon caught on to the adults as well. They would put on masks to disguise themselves and go door to door to beg for food, and some would put on little plays to get food and drink, and sometimes even coins in return. Sometimes people would get rather rowdy and demand more than just food. This began a small spark in the destructive nature that came with Halloween. By 1556, the three-day party had become a much bigger event. People dressed in black and put on masks and went door-to-door to to mourn the dead and practice what was at this time called souling. The participants would go door-to-door to beg for food and be given money for the dead in exchange for praying for the lost souls in purgatory, hence the name souling. This was still only happening in more rural areas of England, however, but Halloween started to become more popular in the cities, and it became a deadly game in the 1600s. On November 5th, 1605, a man named Guy Fox tried to blow up the English House of Lords with 60 kegs of gunpowder. He was caught right before he was about to light the kegs on fire, and he was brought to the Tower of London, where he was there tortured, tried, and hung. After his hanging, he was drawn and quartered, and the parts of him were thrown into a fire. The next year and for years to come on the anniversary of the foiled plot, the children of England would mock the memory of Guy Fawkes by putting on masks and causing what was described as chaos in the streets. This happened at Halloween time, so the energy in England shifted as people started to celebrate in a much different way. People would dress up to hide their identities and then run around for days and cause all kinds of problems, starting fires in the streets and breaking people's properties and also stealing what they could. When the Puritans came to America, they banned all Halloween celebrations along with any Catholic holidays to try to rid them of what they called pagan sin. They believed that Halloween was an evil holiday and that witches and the devil could possess people and tempt them. So to the Puritans, Halloween was out. It didn't last forever, though, as the United States started getting bigger and bigger, more people started to come from the New World over to Europe, and they brought their Halloween traditions right with them. Many other colonies embraced, or at the very least tolerated, celebrating Halloween. The earliest writing of a Halloween gathering in America was in 1833. It was not really a party, but it was a gathering of friends and family for dinner, and then they hung out around the fire to tell ghost stories. By the time Civil War broke out in America, and it lasted from 1861 to 1865, Americans were essentially obsessed with death. Half a million people died in just over four years in this bloody war, and so many of the bodies were unknown or never found and given a proper burial. At this time, there was a huge surge of people telling ghost stories. The first Halloween after the Civil War saw an incredible amount of ghost stories being shared. Most of these ghost stories revolved around loved ones coming back and family members being able to talk to them one last time. 
that is a really sad and bittersweet. Whether it happened or not, it is easy to see how people could have made these events up in their own head just to give them some kind of mental closure. But because of the surge in ghost stories, this added the ghost to the line of Halloween depictions. The ghost that we all know today that looks like a person with a sheet over it sounds cute, but that white sheet is actually what they call a shroud that they would put over the dead bodies. It adds a whole new level of creep to me when you think of it that way. After the Civil War ended in the late 1800s, Scottish and Irish immigrants started coming to America to flee the Irish potato famine. And with them, they brought more old world and more scary Halloween traditions. It became way more popular in America with this surge. The Scots came with the story of the boogeyman, or what they also call bogey. This boogeyman or bogey went after children at night by hiding under their beds or lurking behind closed and open gates. At Halloween, you are not supposed to pass through a gate or a bogey would get you. By this time, we saw the first jack-o'-lantern, but it was not carved out of a pumpkin to start with. It was actually carved out of a turnip. The legend behind this now Halloween staple is that it comes from a legend of a guy named Jack-o'-lantern. Jack was so bad that he got kicked out of hell, and the devil had a little pity on him, so he picked up an ember from hell and gave it to him. Jack took it and placed it inside a hollowed out turnip and carried it around with him. When you see a glow in the woods and you can't see anyone around it, it's supposed to be Jack walking with his ember, walking around the land of the living, but he is not truly alive. So to pay him homage, children would carve their own jack-o'-lanterns and light them with a candle on Halloween. United States author Nathaniel Hawthorne was the first in the United States to reference a jack-o'-lantern in his book, Twice Old Tales. He was describing someone's tattered coat and he said, when you held it up to the light, the light shines through like a jack-o'-lantern. The United States traded the turnip for a much bigger pumpkin. Children found out fast that they could prank people with them too. Halloween was in the United States to stay. But with the Irish and Scottish immigrants, they also brought with them the rowdy, destructive nature to Halloween. Artists started to put together all things scary when it came to Halloween. Witches, ghosts, bats, devils, skeletons, and of course, pumpkins. When you think about it, the pumpkin does look like a skull. The triangle nose, the sunken in eyes, the forced smile. It's essentially death staring you in the face. By the 1920s, Halloween was in crisis mode. Halloween pranks were getting way out of hand, becoming so dangerous that a lot of cities considered banning it. Most of the havoc was being performed by unsupervised adolescent boys. The trick and trick or treat was the more popular part of Halloween by this time. Halloween had got so bad it was making its way into the papers and not in a good way. I am going to give you just a little bit of the mountain of examples that I found that these boys did on Halloween during the 19th century. The European immigrants had brought over pranks like lighting a cabbage on fire and holding it up to a keyhole of an empty house to fill it with a noxious smelling vapor. Then the boys would hide and wait for the person's reaction when they got home. The boys would also use jack-o'-lanterns they made from turnips when they were in Europe to scare people in the dark who were traveling on dark and empty roads. When the customs reached the United States, the games became more destructive and more deadly. Boys started to put wagons and livestock on barn roofs. They would ruin farm farmers' crops by uprooting vegetable gardens. They would tip over outhouses with people inside them. Also, in a small farming community, Halloween became known as gate night because so many kids would open or steal gates 
and scare all the animals out of their paddocks, causing some farmers to start to protect their properties with guns. When the automobile was invented, it started even more pranking opportunities. Removing manhole covers to cause bad accidents and injuries became more normal. Putting fake detour signs to confuse motorists to have them get lost in the woods or out in fields. In the cities, it was getting really bad. Children started to light fires to buildings, causing some death, sadly. Boys would cram bars of soap and wax up streetcar lines, and then that caused the streetcar to derail. In one incident, it seriously injured a conductor. Breaking windows. I saw an article that said like something like 600 windows were broken one just on one Halloween night. It was crazy. Splattering people with paint, putting flour inside stockings and hitting people with it, coating them in flour. Just tripping people for the fun of watching them hurt themselves became the norm on Halloween as well. Needless to say, people were starting to have enough of the antics. One time in Tucson, Arizona in 1907, some group of boys thought it would be a great idea to stretch a wire across the sidewalk and laugh at people as they fell down. Well, one man fell to the ground, and when the boys came up to laugh at him, the man pulled out a revolver and shot one of the kids right in the chest. In that same year, a poor woman was literally scared to death by having a heart attack. When some boys knocked on the door and when her woman's daughter went to open it and they screamed due to a pumpkin being shoved in her face, this caused the woman to literally drop dead of fright. When the depression hit, it became a night of looting and begging, but the United States had had enough and they knew that they had to try to get Halloween under control. During the depression, they didn't have enough money or enough manpower to clean up after the messes caused by the Halloween antics. And officials knew that banning it altogether would never work because it never worked in the past either. So it was time to work with the community organizers and again, the church. They decided to embrace the night, but in an organized fashion. This time, they decided they needed to give something less destructive for the kids to do on Halloween night. They needed an option that was fun, safe, and would keep the rowdy boys under control. This is where we started to see the first Halloween parties like we know them today. It started with the idea to have kids have a fun night in instead of outside, and this way they could get dressed up and play games and stay indoors. And the big companies saw this as not only their civic duty, but also a big moneymaker. Denison and Bystol manufacturing companies saw this as a huge opportunity to make some serious cash. They started making what they called bogey books. These books were guides on how to throw the best Halloween party in the neighborhood. They also started selling paper decorations and paper costumes, which they started selling like hotcakes. And the old traditions of anything spooky like witches, skeletons, bats, spiders, black cats, and jack-o'-lanterns were the perfect decorations for the holiday. Costumes being bought just for Halloween night started to boom. In the old days, people just dressed up in what they had, but now you could actually get a costume that had something to do with maybe a radio show or something you'd see in the funnies in the paper. Sears sold its first box costume in 1930. Trick-or-treating in a controlled way took shape after a woman wrote in one of those women magazines how she kept kids from vandalizing her property on Halloween night by giving them popcorn balls and candy apples. Basically, bribery. But the candy companies started to take note of this and started promoting specific products just for trick-or-treating on Halloween. 
Halloween parades became more and more popular and also more family-friendly as well. Instead of people wreaking havoc, it was now just little kids and their parents dressing up in their favorite costumes before going out for a night of controlled fun. Halloween is now a much safer night for most families after these efforts. Haunted houses became popular. Then Halloween hit TV in 1966 with It's the Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown, was broadcasted for the first time. It made Halloween totally mainstream. In 1978, a movie for adults around Halloween came out called Halloween. This changed the monsters at night from ghosts and skeletons to actual humans. Now, Halloween is so big that they have stores open 365 days a year for this one holiday. There are now over 4,000 haunted houses in the United States, and the full night devoted to Halloween events are even at the theme parks for adults and kids alike. Examples that come to mind is Halloween Horror Nights at Universal Studios and, of course, Oogie Boogie Bash at Disneyland. Halloween is definitely my favorite time of year, a time where I can just be myself or actually, in this case, be someone completely different. Because I do not have a location for this episode, I thought I would tell you a few ghost stories that have some historical facts to back up the claims. Because after all, this is a historical paranormal podcast and this is Halloween. What's Halloween without a good ghost story? first story I have for you tonight is the ghost at Bellamy Bridge. Bellamy Bridge is located in Mariana, Florida. This story even has its own website, bellamybridge.org, and that is where I got a lot of the information for this episode. The legend says that in 1837, Elizabeth Bellamy was to marry Dr. Samuel C. Bellamy. On the night of her wedding day, her wedding dress caught on fire, which covered the young bride in severe burns. She initially survived, but eventually passed away due to the burn injuries. And today it is said that you can see her in her white wedding dress wandering the banks of the swamp and on what is now called Bellamy Bridge. Now, that's the legend. The real story is almost more tragic in my opinion. Elizabeth Prome Bellamy was born into one of the wealthiest families in the South. Her brother, Hardy Brian Crome, was a famous botanist who is credited as the one who discovered Florida's terra tree. When she was young, Elizabeth fell in love with Dr. Samuel Bellany, and they decided to get married. Elizabeth married Samuel in North Carolina on July 15, 1834, and no fire incidents were ever reported. After the wedding, they moved back to Florida to start a family. After they were settled in, Elizabeth gave birth to a son named Alexander in 1835. The family lived happily until the whole household came down with malaria. While Samuel recovered, He had to watch his wife Elizabeth die from the illness, leaving him and their sick baby behind. Sadly, only seven days after Elizabeth passed away, Alexander died at only 18 months old. Elizabeth and her baby were buried not far from the bridge. Samuel was grief-stricken and he never remarried. He turned to drugs and alcohol. Fifteen years later, he committed suicide at the ferry landing in Chattahoochee, Florida. The bridge is now just a skeleton from what it once was, and no one can walk on it. But there is a nature trail that leads directly to the bridge, even though you can't cross over it. Ghost sightings and legends have dated back to the 1700s from this swampland, but now the most famous is Elizabeth. She haunts the bridge and the swamp in the surrounding area. It is said that she is forever searching for her baby. You can hear cries sometimes in the middle of the night, as if she's looking, searching, 
and longing for her long-lost love and her baby. It is said that sometimes she can be a more of a vengeful spirit. People have reported getting pushed, tripped, and scratched, but mostly today, people feel great sadness, and they see a white light moving over the bridge and in the tree line. She shows up in pictures as well as bright light orbs, and you can see streaks across many photos when there's no reason for there to be. They have several photos on their website, and many paranormal teams have been to the area to investigate the site, and they've got some really neat results from REM pods and many EVPs. Many people have claimed to spot her just sitting down and crying or walking over the bridge in ghostly apparition. Up next, I have the hauntings of the Surrency family. The Surrency family lived in a big home near the railroad tracks that ran through the town of Surrency, Georgia. This small town is about 90 miles southwest of Savannah, Georgia. Alan Powell Surrency was a sawmill operator and also the founder of the town of Surrency. He lived in the home with his family, and they began to be plagued by violent paranormal activity, seemingly out of nowhere. One day, when Alan came home from a road trip, on October 1872, he found the house to be full of haunts. He and his family claimed that from the moment he entered the house after his trip, glasses began to shake in the dining room and things began to be thrown off the shelves and noises could be heard all around the house from tapping to banging to moaning. Most people today think this was a poltergeist activity. It would go on for months or years and then stop for a while only to have it start back up again later on. Just some of the things claimed to have happened at this house were disembodied voices, banging, tapping, and screaming. Plates, books, and planters would come flying off the shelves. Doors would open and close by themselves. A pair of boots seemingly seemed to walk with no one in them across the floor. Doors opened, closed, and slammed by themselves. Hands of clocks were spun too fast, and some even spun backwards. Allegedly, a clock once struck 13, and hot bricks fell from thin air and landed on the roof and all in the yard. The dining room table was reported to almost dance across the room, and bed covers would be torn off of sleeping people. This activity became so violent and so intense that the family began to ask anyone for help, and word spread, and all this activity was witnessed by thousands of people, even after the house was burned down in 1925. The activity followed the family to a new home on the other side of the country. The family had contacted many people for help, the church, mediums, to even spiritual leaders, and anyone they could, they spread the word and desperate plea for help. People at the time called the energy surrounding the family and the house evil. Activity only stopped when Alan Serency died in 1877, which has a lot of people seeing a lot of similarities to the Bell Witch in that the activity didn't really stop until the man who was being plagued by the Bell Witch, the head of the family, passed away. The people of Serency today claim that activity, especially mostly poltergeist activity, come and goes in many homes in the town to this day. 
And strange ghost lights are famous in this town, and it sends a lot of paranormal investigators going along the old railroad tracks seeking out this ghost light. Ghost ships, cars, and phantom trains have been reported since they were invented, but this story is about a real-life tragedy that still might be playing out in the waters of the Tom Bigby River in ghostly form. On March 1, 1858, a steamship called the Eliza Battle was running its normal route from Columbus, Mississippi to Mobile, Alabama. The Eliza Battle was one of the most luxurious riverboats at this time. In late February, she was scheduled to make one of her usual trips. She was carrying about 60 passengers and 45 crew members and more than 1,200 bales of cotton. The ship was captained by S. Graham Stone with Daniel Eaps as pilot. Jeff left port from Columbus in February 1858 and made its way down the river. It made its stops at Pickensville, Gainesville, Demopolis, and other small river landings to pick up its passengers and its various amounts of cotton. When it left port from Demopolis on February 28th, 1858, it was fully loaded and ready to go to Mobile, Alabama. The night was cold and had strong winds beginning to blow from the north. The air temperature decreased another 40 degrees Fahrenheit in just over two hours after the sun went down, so it was an extremely cold night. At 2 a.m. on March 1st, 1858, about 23 miles downriver from Demopolis, near Beakley's Landing, the bales of cotton caught fire on the main deck. With strong winds still coming from the north, the fire quickly spread to an out-of-control blaze. The water pumps failed first, causing the fire to get into the engine room and in turn made it impossible to steer the ship. The crew abandoned their posts and the boat continued down the river out of control. The fire cut off passengers from the lifeboat's access point and they had no choice but to jump into the freezing river in nothing but their night clothes. Some people managed to survive by floating on cotton bales that had fallen into the water and some climbed up trees. The ship finally came to rest still on fire above what is now known as Kemp's Landing that is located near modern Alabama State Route 114 Bridge. The ship then sank and is still underneath the water to this day. The survivors had to wait to be rescued by another ship called the Magnolia and local residents that saw this accident happening from the banks rushed to help. The total number of people who died in this tragic accident was 33. The accident made headlines in the newspapers all over the world and the steamboat accident was one of the worst maritime tragedies on the Tom Biggie River. This ghost ship is now called the Phantom Steamboat of Tom Biggie. Today, people who live and work near the area and near the river claim that at night they can hear 1800 style music drifting across the water when there is nothing and no one around. Screams for help in the dead of night or especially around 2 a.m. have been heard along with seeing flames in the distance. Some have even claimed to see a fully engulfed ship in flames and just when they're about to do something like call 911 for instance the ship just vanishes. 
The smell of smoke and disembodied voices near the area that it sank have been reported as well. Some people, while traveling down the river, pass this area and they have a feeling of dread and of being watched. And some who have passed through at night have claimed to see people waving from the trees for help and people in the water as well. Apparitions have been seen standing on the bank, staring at ships as they pass by with a blank stare. Some have even claimed to see a ship drifting down the river as if replaying its final moments, only to disappear in front of them. Fishermen and captains on this river still consider seeing this ship a bad omen, as if it is giving them a warning or it's an omen that there will be a disaster yet to come. I hope you have all enjoyed this episode about the history of Halloween and some creepy ghost stories to go along with it. Next week, I will be bringing you the history of some of those urban legends that I hold dear to my heart. Ever been told one around a campfire? Well, it's going to be creepy. Don't forget to follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and please leave a comment down below. Thank you guys so much for listening. I hope you guys have a wonderful week. I'll see you next week. And oh yeah, happy Halloween. (laughs) 